I'm Pete Soderling, and welcome to the Zero Prime Podcast, where we explore the early stories of top startups via the experiences of their engineer founders. This week, I chat with Matt Fuller, co-founder of Starburst, the company behind the open-source Trino Query Engine. Matt has a long history as an engineering leader in several different data companies prior to Starburst, which we'll hear about. We'll also be talking about Matt's thoughts on how he's been able to participate in product development and go-to-market activities as an engineer founder himself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Matt Fuller to the podcast. Matt is a co-founder of Starburst. And Matt, you've worked at some really influential and significant data companies over the years, including Oracle, Vertica, Adapt, Teradata, and now a founder of Starburst. Tell us a little bit about how you got into data and an interesting story from at least one of those roles. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're right. I've been kind of in this data space for my entire career career starting um, you know at Oracle initially then to Vertica and, and and so on to where I am here today at Starburst yeah interesting thing yeah so I started at Oracle in fact I I, I was uh, an intern there never full-time person but when I came back from my internship there like that's sort of where I really became kind of deeply in love with this space and finished out my college studies at Brown and when I was at Brown one of the professors I had was one of the co authors on C-Store paper. And the C-Store paper ended up being commercialized by Vertica. Vertica is the commercialization of this research paper. And so that's how I kind of got introduced to Vertica. And it was a really kind of inspiring to kind of talk to the team there, you know, really working on a new approach to thing. You know, at the time, if you wanted to run a data analytics, you had to go buy a traditional solution like like Teradata, like an appliance. And, you know, their approach was, you know, a software only MPP style scale out architecture, which today is very, people are very familiar with. Back then it was um, sort of a unique thing and I thought it was really cool. And I joined there, eyes wide open as a, a young college grad and, you know, really learned a lot there and kind of, in some ways, like set me up to get to a point where I could found a company myself one day of just everything I, I learned there through, through those times. And what did you work on specifically at Vertica? Yeah. So I worked on the optimizer primarily. So this is the part that takes in the SQL query that you write and comes up with the, the most optimal way to, to execute it. Really cool because, you know, there's not, I mean, yes, there are a number of systems out there, but like all things considered, there's, you know, only a handful of these systems. So being able to actually like work early on in one of an optimizer was like really fun and cool. And so, yeah, learned a, learned a lot there. And actually it was, it's funny because one of my favorite courses in college was compilers and there's like a lot of, you know, kind of compiler theory, you know, associated with optimizer. For those of our listeners who might not remember, Vertico was one of the original columnar data stores. I don't know if it was the original one, Matt, you probably would remember, but I'm super significant at the time because to be able to have a columnar store was just not something that, you know, most databases were, the architecture um, was handled and the indexing was handled completely differently. So vertical was really a thing at the time, especially from a performance standpoint. Yeah, that's correct. There are some variants, you know, some people may make claims they were similar, but like the way Vertica did it was absolutely first and unique. This was before Parquet and ORC and, and all that stuff from the Hadoop days, which you know, is is columnar, of course, but this was you know, before then. Yeah, what a fascinating time to be working in databases. And so what's changed mostly, would you say, since that time when you entered your career between then and now? Yeah, I would say kind of the the rise in, hate to say almost fall of Hadoop, but there was, um, we certainly saw the beginnings of Hadoop and yeah, Hadoop's 
still around, but you know, certainly not what it once was. And and also just kind of the being able to kind of see the commercialization of open source software as well was fascinating. I mean, of, of course, there was Red Hat back then, but not like you see today from commercializing you know, open source projects and just the the, the increase in, in viral adoption of open source is has been fascinating. And sort of observing that through my times at Vertica and, and Adapt and, and Teradata, I mean, ultimately learned a lot through observing other companies to, you know, allow us to found Starburst. Um, but yeah, that was certainly one of the most fascinating things of just seeing, you know, someone who could, you know, use Hadoop to run analytics at large scale. Like that just simply couldn't be done by smaller companies mm. who just couldn't afford, you know, a, a, an expensive system like Teradata or Natizer or even Vertica. Vertica was, you know, less expensive than Teradata, but you still had to have funds to, to buy it, like in a, in a startup couldn't, but with Hadoop, you know, now startups could open and run, you know, kind of analytics practices for your company. And what would you say you miss most about the good old Hadoop days? Oh, <laughs> you know, it was, um, you know, it was kind of like a, a time of innovation for, for sure. You know, as I mentioned, it allowed these smaller companies to run analytics and eventually, obviously, you know, enterprise prices adopted it as Cloudera and Hortonworks and MapR came to the scene. But really just, I think it just led to a lot of rapid growth in the industry, but a ton of valuable projects came out of Hadoop as well. And in fact, you know, you could say Trino, which was formerly known as Presto, like came out of the the need, you know, for two people were had tons and tons of data on HDFS and they needed to query it and systems like Presto came out of that. But yeah, the fact Hadoop had tons of tools, the the most valuable one in my opinion was HDFS, you know, and and all the various tools to to query the data in HDFS were were fine, but you know, HDFS was where all the the data was. That was um, you know, certainly interesting to observe that growth for sure. So Starburst is the first company where you became a co-founder. I'm curious, um, what was it like taking the plunge for you as an engineer to start the company and to participate on the founding team? Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely exciting. I would say, you know, just a bit about me, you know, always aspired to found and start something. So, you know, every decision I made in my career or in school was, you know, how, how can I learn as much as I can so I, I could do this this one day. So, you know, I'd work at startups so I could learn the technology and meet other people in the network because the startup community and and people who work at startup are very supporting of founders and and so on. So, you know, that was kind of a bit about me of what I, you know, always wanted to do. You know, and I think kind of how did I get into founding Starburst? I would say when I was at Teradata, um, we had an initiative to kind of help their open source strategy. And as part of that, we were looking at a variety of different open source projects and we're like, okay, Cloudera has, uh, they're working on Hadoop with um, with Hive and, and Hortonworks, sorry, Clutter had Impala, Hortonworks had Hive, MapBar had a drill and so on. But we came across um, Presto, which all these companies in Silicon Valley were were using and, you know, started looking at it more and more like, wow, this is like a really amazing project. You know, we, we started to work with the creators of Presto who 
who are also co-founders here at Starburst. So we were at Teradata, our other co-founders were at, at Facebook at the time and really started to work together on Presto. And then when we were at Teradata, we were seeing a lot of interest from the enterprise to want to run Presto at scale. And so we sort of saw this like really popular open source project being used by some of the largest companies in the world, Facebook and Uber and Airbnb and LinkedIn and Netflix and Pinterest. They were all using it. And then we start seeing enterprise companies like Comcast wanted to use it. So it was kind of this, almost like this perfect storm of like, this was a, a great opportunity to actually build a business around it. So, you know, kind of long story short, we all left our respective jobs and, and created Starburst and, and kind of that's, you know, where we are now. Got it. That's great. And what was a big challenge for you as an engineer in starting a company? Like what was surprising to you or an unforeseen challenge in something regarding the early days of Starburst? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, while I had exposure to kind of the go-to-market side and, and product side at Teradata, never, you know, was always kind of engineering focused whether doing you know software engineering myself or being a manager of software engineers. But at a small startup, you end up wearing many hats and becoming kind of a jack of all, all trades. So really kind of got very interested into product during that time of, you know, eventually moved into product over time. But like some of the interesting challenges were non-engineering ones like, you know, well, we have to set up a website and we have to create marketing collateral and, and figure out a on-call system for our support team. And, and so all sorts of, um, you know, things in the early days that weren't necessarily engineering related, but as an engineer starting a company, you know, having to kind of figure, figure all these things out because you don't have dedicated people for each of those functions yet. Yeah. Founders have to be T-shaped in that sense, right? Where they span a broad swath of skills and, and bring a lot lot of ability to do anything to the table in many cases. Yeah, well, that, that makes perfect sense. And remind me, how many co-founders did you have at Starburst? Yeah, we actually have a, um, a fairly sizable you know, set of co-founders. Geez, you're going to put me on the spot now, but I want to say we have about 10 uh, wow. co-founders. Yeah. And, you know, in various areas, whether as engineers or, you know, I'm in product or our, our CTOs or, you know, our CEO, we all kind of started on the same day. But yeah, that's a, a unique thing about us is there's um, probably more more co-founders than you may typically see at a startup. Yeah, yeah that is unique. Definitely yeah. a little a little bit unusual, but glad to see that's worked for you guys. Yeah, it's it's worked out. Yeah, it's worked out well. We all chipped in and, and found our founder places mm -hmm. to work together. And so you mentioned being involved in the go-to-market process, and I know that this is something that many engineer founders in our community have questions about and challenges with. It's one of the top things that bubbles up to me when I'm talking to young engineer founders who are concerned about GTM aspects and, and how to yeah. get their product actually into the hands of customers. Tell us what you learned as an engineer about participating in that process and and how you discovered ways that, you know, you in particular were able to add value, maybe in ways that surprised you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think I was mostly interested in in product because I just wanted to make sure that we were focused on the right things. Cause I, I think back to other startups I had been at and they were successful, but like one of the things I observe, especially as an individual contributor engineer, let's just say at Vertica, for example, it was not always clear to me that the thing I was working on was like the most important thing. It may have been, but it wasn't always clear to me 
as a, as an engineer. And uh, so I think working on a, a technical product such as Starburst, you do have to be kind of engineering minded, but I also kind of had an engineering mindset. So I kind of understood their frame of thinking and could explain things back to them in a way that they understood how their work is being impactful. And really there's a few reasons for that. I mean, one is the more the engineer understands the problem they're trying to solve and the pain of the customer, kind of the less prescriptive you need to be in terms of what they need to build because they, they're engineers, they're going to figure it out. So like, I like to kind of present it as a, a problem to them and not tell them exactly how to solution it because they may come up with something better than that I could present to them. So really spending a lot of time focused on what the the customer pain is, what they're looking to accomplish and, you know, not dive right into the solution. I'd say at first that was certainly challenging because as an engineer, you like, you're like, oh, I know exactly what they, they need to do. And you just, you go for the customer comes to you with the solution and like, it makes sense to you as well. And so it's like really easy to fall into that trap as an engineer, but if you kind of take a step back and it's like, okay, you want feature X, but like, what are you trying to do? Because sometimes it's like, you might already have feature Y that works for them and you don't have to, you know, go build something new or, you know, maybe feature Z you still have to build, but it's like ultimately better for them and more applicable for a broader set of use cases. So, you know, getting kind of focused on trying to figure out the problem versus going right to the engineering solution was, you know, was an interesting journey. I mean, the other things is like just um, understanding like who you're talking to on the customers because they sometimes, depending if they're a technical champion or someone more on the business side, they speak in different vocabulary and they understand things different ways. So like being able to level your talk based on who you're talking to is, you know, something that took me a bit of time to to figure out. But yeah, that's that was also kind of an interesting thing as well. But I guess, you know, my advice for it or anyone is just it's like anything, like the more practice you get doing it, you can kind of figure that out. Yeah. So much of it is like you said, being aware of who really it is you're talking to and what their interests are and what level in the organization they're at. Because the higher up you get in an org, the the more business oriented even engineering teams or directors of engineering or VPs of engineering and get um, at really needing to solve business challenges. And so sometimes getting in the weeds technically on some of these things with some of these levels of person is actually not exactly the right answer. So I think it's helpful to be sensitive to that as you're a founder trying to figure out what you're in, your particular in is with an organization and, and where you're sitting in their organizational hierarchy. Yeah. And sometimes you get surprised. Like, you think you're talking to this this person way up in the organization and you know, from the business perspective, they're asking you like really good business questions. And then all of a sudden they go from like 30,000 feet to like 300 feet with like a question. But being a being a technical person, like you can you can kind of operate at that at that that um, spectrum. But it's it's sometimes fun when you get those like technical questions out of left field. You're like, well, I didn't I didn't expect that, but you know, here's an answer. And what about from the open source perspective? How does open source change the shape of the go-to-market team, in your opinion? Right, like many enterprise companies will have sales engineers and certain specific kinds of roles that are sort of baked into their process. Have you noticed that working on an open source, a, a meaningful open source project and building a commercial product on top of that changes your go-to-market and, and sort of what the role, the needed roles are on the team? Like, do you, do you have sales engineers? For instance, Matt Starburst. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Being based on open source projects certainly changes the dynamic compared to a company that isn't based on an open source project. I'd say in both cases, whether it's open source or not, we do have sales engineers because it is a technical product. But I think the thing that that does change is users of the open source project are 
can be a lead funnel, right? They may start off using the software and then it works out for them. Some people are happy to use it. Some people decide that they want, you know, to come for us for the commercial offering. And, you know, sometimes they may decide not now, you know, maybe a year from now after the usage grows and, and so on, they want to get whether it's interesting features from us or our, our SaaS version of it so they don't have to manage. There's a whole host of reasons why, you know, you may not want to use the open source over, over commercial and vice versa. But that's an interesting lead funnel because unlike maybe companies that don't have that model, like the people are already using the software when they come to you. So they've already trialed at least the core components for the most part. You don't need to convince them on, you know, the merits of why you use Trino, but it's like why here's what we can do to help you, you know, beyond, you know, the open source. So that that definitely changes there. And then we still want to invest in a lot in the community as well. I mean, it's a great project and we see whether the the customer uses the open source or uses Starburst, it's still a win for us. And, you know, eventually, you know, someone may uh, choose to use Starburst, but it is an investment we do for to help grow the community, whether it's community developers or just contributions into the project. Yeah, that's great. So, so Matt, tell me, what is it you're most excited about regarding the future of Trino? Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a great question. A few things. I think one thing I'm really excited about is the growth of the Iceberg table format. And just for those that don't know, that is an open source table format that can enable a lake house architecture. You know, another format from a, a commercial perspective is, is Databricks is, um, is Delta Lake. The reason why I'm very excited about Iceberg is, first of all, there's a growing community and in some ways very analogous to Trino, where it's a very open project. Yes, there's a, a commercial company that it sells a commercial version or a hosted version of it uh, called Tabular, just like there's a commercial company behind Trino called Starburst. But like they are both truly open source projects. And I think kind of the combination of Trino plus Iceberg can give you the kind of the most open way to run a lake house architecture. And then if you want to you know, go the commercial route, you know, having kind of a, a tabular Starburst way could be that option for people as well. But you know, we've spent a lot of you know, time over the last year or so making the iceberg integration with uh, Trino very well and, 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 you know, subsequently Starburst and Iceberg and, and so on. So that's one thing I'm pretty excited about, especially as we kind of see the growth in, um, you know, kind of lake house style architectures. Yeah. So that's one, I guess the other is kind of more on the, the Starburst side is about a little over a year ago, we, we launched our SaaS product. So a little bit about us as we started the company as kind of an on-prem, really less on-prem because we run on cloud too, but a self-managed installable product. Starburst Enterprise is the product name. You know, great adoption there. It's it's been it's worked out quite well for us. But you know, there's been a growing need for people who don't want to self-manage software. And offering a SaaS solution is is something we introduced a little over a year ago. So really excited for what that that brings up in the years to come as well. Awesome. Well, Matt, it's been great to chat with you today, and I'm excited to see you at Data Council coming up. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm excited to see you as well. And I guess just a little plug is I'm uh, giving a workshop on. Uh, Trino and Iceberg. So hopefully I'll, I'll see some of you all there. Awesome. I'm sure the community will take advantage of that. And yeah, it'll be great to see you and catch up. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Zero Prime podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Matt Fuller. If you'd like to get in touch with Matt, you can find him on Twitter at mfullertweets, or you can find his company Starburst at starburst.io. 
If you like hearing from engineer founders on the cutting edge of enterprise startups and developer tools, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next time. Thank you.